Amen. Well, uh, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll continue in our series uh, on love, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll look at verses 4 through 7. And uh, as Chad mentioned uh, earlier uh, this morning, and as the elders uh, prayed for me, uh, this is, uh, has been 10 years now that I've been at Berea, and I just want to share with you what a joy it's been. Uh, to be your pastor, and uh, am looking forward to 10 more years uh, by God's grace, and uh, uh, looking forward to all that God will do. Uh, I believe that, um, that there's great things ahead for us uh, by His grace. I'm going to uh, begin reading uh, in verse 1 of chapter 13, and I'll uh, read the whole chapter. It's only 13 verses, and then this morning, uh, we're going to v- focus on verses 4 through 7, okay? So follow along as uh, I read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part... And we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we're so grateful uh, for your word. Lord, we pray now that by your spirit you would open our eyes to the reality of love for which we are so often blinded. Lord, we pray that as we have been singing this morning, that your love would be a fresh reality to us. And Lord, we pray that we would be changed by it. We pray, Father, as a church, as we seek to glorify You by enjoying and living and proclaiming the Gospel, that we would be a people marked by love. Our love for one another, our love for our community, our love for the nations. Lord, we pray that it would be evident by Your grace. So do that work in us and use this time to that end, we pray. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. As we saw last week in the first three verses of chapter 13, uh, Paul makes a pretty remarkable statement. He says that we can be exceptionally gifted and we can accomplish exceptional things, in fact, spiritual things, and still not be a Christian. That giftedness and spiritual experience is not the essential mark of a Christian, but rather love is. 
that love, if, if you really want to know what is at the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian, one who pursues Christ, it is love. This is the chief mark of a Christian. And so then we naturally ask the question, well, what is love? What is love? And that's not as obvious as it might seem at first. Our series is entitled, What's Love Got to Do With It? And if you uh, looked at or received one of the invite cards uh, that we've been using to invite folks to come and to uh, be a part of this series, you might have read the tagline, uh, which went uh, like this. Uh, It says, so under the title, What's Love Got to Do With It? There's a tagline. It reads, We talk and sing and write and daydream about love, but do we really understand what love is all about? That's a great question. But one of the things that we realize is that love can be used in a number of different contexts, right? So we speak of, uh, we might say something like, I love ice cream. Or guys, it's about that time of year where we start to say, I love football, right? Or I uh, love her hair. Uh, We might say to our spouse or to our children, I love you. Or we speak of God's love for us. Or as we've been singing this morning, we sing of our love for Him. Now, all of these uses of love have different connotations. Obviously, the love that you have for ice cream is different than the love you have for your children. So, so what kind of love is, is Paul talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? He's talking about agape love, divine love. A, a love that has been shown to us by God in Christ. And a love that we, as a result, should have for one another. Now the Bible teaches us that if we are, and this is one of the things we want to try to do this morning, that if we are to move towards a definition of love, if we are to define love, then we must start with God. I know that many people would bristle at that thought. Maybe you're here this morning and, and that doesn't sit well with you, that if we really want to define love, we have to start with God. It's worth noting that if you took a different approach, a a rather popular approach in our own day, which is a naturalist worldview, namely the idea that there is no God, that everything that we see and experience in this life is the result of evolutionary forces and process without any reference to God, then, if you approach things from that perspective, your thoughts of love, I believe, will necessarily be greatly diminished. You see, if you come at it from a naturalistic worldview or approach, then there is no greater reality outside of our physical or natural world that defines love or gives love eternal significance. Rather, love is an invention of an evolutionary process. And the only purpose for love in that evolutionary process is self-preservation. So, and if you are truly a consistent naturalist, love is just a series of chemical reactions in the brain. And it moves us, yes, to marry someone perhaps or to raise our children, but ultimately underneath that, the rationale or the reason for doing so is simply self-perpetuation. It's in order that the race might be perpetuated. Outside of the ambition of personal preservation, love has no meaning or enduring significance. 
And my friends, understand that the Bible's presentation of love is very, very different. And I believe even by experience and by an innate sense within us of what's right and wrong is more consistent with reality. In 1 John, we read that God is love. Now, there's a definition of love. God is love. Notice what John did not say. John did not say love is God. That's actually quite different. It's significant because it's not that we take our preconceived notions of what we believe love to be and then we say, oh, God must be like that. You see? No, that's idolatry. Rather, what John says is that God is love. Our notions of what love is does not define God, but God defines what love is. God himself defines love. And so if we want to know love then we must know God. Now with that in mind, I want us to consider these verses this morning in three parts. I want us to see, first of all, the transforming power of love. Secondly, I want us to see a description of love. And then third, a response to love. Okay? So look there at the passage. I'll read verses 4 to 7 for us again. And we're going to look at this idea of the transforming power of love. Paul writes in verse 4, Love is patient and kind, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, as we approach this, let's put it in the larger context of chapter 13. So, Paul begins in verses 1 through 3, and we talked about this initially, Paul begins by saying you can possess miraculous uh, gifts or abilities. You can accomplish great feats for God. But if you don't have love, you've gained nothing spiritually. Now, coming out of that from verses 1 to 3, we might expect then, as we come to verse 4, for Paul to say something like this. Therefore, you must be patient and kind. You must not envy or boast or be arrogant or rude. I command you, do not insist on your own way or be irritable or resentful. Do not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoice in the truth. I command you to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. Now, in one sense, it would not have been wrong for Paul to do that because those are all good commands and exhortations. But he doesn't do that. Instead, what we see in these verses is that Paul does not lead with, you should be X. But rather, Paul leads with, love is. Now, that's important for this reason. Because you cannot love unless first you encounter love. And so, in verses 4 through 7... There is a sense in which there are commands here, in which there is an imperative upon our own lives to live this way, but before it is a command, it is an objective reality. Love is this. God is this. God acts in this way. Love is a reality. And once you experience love, that's the key then to you becoming more loving. 
In Luke chapter 7, Jesus tells a parable of a uh, money lender and two debtors. Very short parable. He says that one of the debtors owed uh, 500 denarii and another owed 50 denarii. And uh, neither one of them could pay their debts. And so the money lender, in his grace and in his mercy, he canceled both their debts. And then Jesus asked his disciples, now, which one of them will love him more? And Peter answers, the one with the larger debt. And Jesus says, you have judged rightly. Now, why is that? Because the man with the larger debt represents one who has deeply experienced and encountered the love and grace of God. And as a result, he loves. You see, my friends, we will never love the way we have been created to love unless we encounter and experience the love of God for us through his son, Jesus. But that love has the power to transform us. The transforming power of love. Now, the second thing I want us to see in our passage, and this is where we'll spend most of our time, is a description of love. And what I want to do here is just walk through what Paul writes here regarding love and just make a comment on each of these, okay? And so we will see love being fleshed out for us here as Paul describes it for us. First of all, Paul says in verse 4, love is patient and kind. And so, first of all, we see that love is patient. Love is willing to suffer and to forbear for the sake of others. It would rather be hurt, it would rather be put out, it would rather suffer than to inflict suffering or injury on another, whether uh, whether in word or deed. Not only is love patient, but it is also kind. That is, love is eager to actively move towards others to bless them and to uplift them. And listen, this is exactly how Jesus tells us that the Father loves. So Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Isn't that great? He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. The evil. That's the reason why you should love like this, because God is kind even to the wicked. He is patient in that He withholds the judgment that they rightly deserve, desiring that all men would come to repentance. Or as Jesus tells us in another place, God loves in such a way that He blesses both the righteous and the unrighteous with rain, right? Even this morning we've witnessed that, right? God is so kind That he doesn't just give rain to the righteous, but to the unrighteous as well. So kind and so patient is he. Next, Paul says, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. He says that in chapter 4. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Each of these qualities we see address how we handle success. So, first of all, Envy refers to how we handle the success of others, right? When others are successful, do we rejoice? Are we happy for them? Or do we get angry and sulk? I read about a cartoon in the New Yorker magazine in which there were two dogs and they were talking over a drink. And one of the dogs said to the other dog, 
It's not just that dogs have to win, but it's that cats have to lose. That's a demonstration of envy, right? You, you don't desire or rejoice in the success of others. And then boasting and arrogance has to do not with the success of others, but with our own personal success, right? So what Paul says here is that even when successful, love is not fixated on making much of ourselves, but in helping and serving others. Love is not always bragging about our accomplishments and accolades and achievements. But rather, love moves towards others in service. Jesus modeled this for us in John chapter 13. It's a remarkable passage. We read there, John writes in John chapter 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, we read that verse, and what would we expect Jesus to do next, right? So, so Jesus knows that the Father had given all things into His hands, that He had come from God, that He was going back to God to rule and reign over the universe. And what would we expect Jesus to do next? Tell the disciples to bow down and worship Him, maybe? The very next verse, He laid aside His outer garments, He took a towel, He tied it around His waist, then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now listen, when it says that all things had been given into His hands, and that's speaking of the entire cosmos, I would call that success. But how does Jesus deal with success? He moves towards others in humble service. That section concludes in John 13 with Jesus saying, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. His love is the basis by which we learn to love one another. Paul goes on in verse 4 to say, Love is not rude. Love is not rude. Is that verse 4? Yes, it is. Love is not rude. So love is courteous and it's considerate of others. It it takes into account the response of others, whether our words or our actions, how they might respond. Uh, This includes our tone, our demeanor, our body language. Love is concerned for the feelings of others as well as their emotional and spiritual well-being. So love recognizes that the way that we speak or interact with others, the way we respond to them, can either negatively or positively affect them for their spiritual and emotional good or ill. And so love does not excuse rudeness by saying, well, I was just getting it off my chest. Love is more concerned about others than thoughtless self-expression. Listen, my friends. Jesus was not rude, but He was imminently approachable because He was the embodiment of love. Do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty nine? 29? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Here it is. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And people flocked to Jesus, didn't they? Right? They just flocked to Him. Why? He was not rude. He was the embodiment of love. 
And they long to be with you. Love does not insist on its own way, Paul says in verse 5. Love does not insist on its own way. So love is concerned for the interest of others. Now, you, you may have already, already been mulling this over in your own mind and heart or dealing with this. And as, particularly as we come to this description of love, you might have this objection that, listen, and, and this, is, this is a danger if, if taken wrongly. Listen, if you live like this, if you live like Paul is saying here, like Jesus models for us, then you will be a doormat. You will live without boundaries. That would be the modern lingo. You'll live without boundaries. You won't be able to say no to anyone. You might lose all your money. You'll lose your health. You'll lose your family. Now listen, some people, because Paul says love does not insist on its own way. Love puts the interest of others before our own interest. Some people approach that and provide a solution by that by coming at it with self-esteem. And so they say the solution to that is to teach self-esteem. We have to love ourselves. People need to love themselves. That's the solution. You have to love yourself first, and then you can love other people. Listen, my friends, I think self-esteem theory can easily lead to a lot of selfishness and and be destructive for us and others. I think there is another solution. We do need boundaries in our lives, but there is a higher rationale for boundaries than I love myself. Rather, a higher rationale for boundaries is so that I might give myself entirely to God and in service to others, and God sets those boundaries, and God sets those parameters. Do you get that? The boundaries are not because I love myself more than I love others, but because I want to give myself entirely to God, and I want to give myself in service for others, and He sets the boundaries and the parameters for how I can do that best. Now listen, if you embrace that, you still might lose everything. Jesus lost everything in His love for us. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And it was glorious that He lost everything. But if you lose everything, you will do so for the right reasons. Not as a careless offering of ourselves for every whim and wish that others might have, but an intentional, sacrificial love that is consistent with God's will for us and those we seek to serve. And in that way, in that way, we can love others with this sacrificial love. Next, we see in our text that love is not, verse 5, love is not irritable. Or could be translated, love is not easily angered. So love doesn't take personal frustration or irritation out on others. Now, I have to say, this is really convicting to me as a parent. Um, because uh, if you are a parent, you know how in our sin, it's easy to be irritable with a young child that won't obey or listen, right? But when I'm marked by irritability in the way that I parent, I can recognize quickly that my motives are selfish. So, So parents, listen, 
God has placed us in authority over our children to teach them and to train them and to discipline them for their good that they might learn to love and follow God with all their hearts. And if that is my motive, that I'm teaching and training and disciplining so that they might know and love God, then even when they disobey and repeatedly, I can remain calm and clear and direct and consistent. But when my motive shifts to, I want them to be quiet because I I don't want to be undisturbed and I want a peaceful life, or I want others to think well of me and their behavior, then I am quick to be irritable. I get harsh in tone, I lash out, and I realize that I am not leading and training and disciplining out of a motive of love, but selfishness. Now listen, my friends, who's the perfect model for us? Hebrews 12 tells us that the Father, God the Father, and this is the words that are used, disciplines us, always disciplines us for our good that we might share in His holiness. God the Father never disciplines us because He's irritable. He never disciplines us because He is quick to anger. He always disciplines us with loving intentionality for our good so that we might become all that He has created us to be. Next, Paul says that love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. Literally, it could be, it's translated, love does not count up wrongdoing. Love does not count up wrongdoing. In other words, love forgives Uh, This word that's used here, does not count, or could be translated does not reckon, is a mathematical term. And Paul uses it to refer to God's love for us that he has granted to us in Christ. So in the other letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul writes, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their their trespasses against them. That's the love that Paul's speaking of here. Not counting their trespasses against them. And again, Jesus models this forgiving love for us. We remember when Jesus was on the cross and when he was being unjustly beaten and crucified by sinful men, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Jesus forgave his enemies. But not only that, Jesus forgave his friends, didn't he? And sometimes that can be even more difficult. Peter was his friend, right? Peter was Jesus' friend. He was his disciple. He was, in fact, chief of the disciples. Peter, of all people, was to be a person that Jesus could count on. When things got rough, when things got hard, Jesus should be able to count on Peter. You remember that the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Peter denied him three times. And my friends, some of you know by personal experience that the wounds of a friend can cut much deeper than the wounds of an enemy. 
You remember when Jesus was resurrected and the women went to the tomb and the angel appeared to them there. Do you remember what the angel said? It's, it's really beautiful. The angel said to the women, it, their words were full of grace, go tell his disciples and Peter. Isn't that great? Peter was a disciple. The angels could have just said, go tell the disciples. That would have covered it. But instead they said, go tell the disciples and Peter. They single out Peter. Why? I believe because the angels and Jesus wanted Peter to know that this resurrection and this redemption which he had won was for Peter. Cowardly, traitor Peter. It's for you. Go tell Peter. I've been raised from the dead. And in John chapter 20, we read how Jesus graciously forgives and recommissions Peter for gospel ministry. The love of Jesus does not count up wrongdoing. It is not resentful. It forgives. Next, we see in our our verse there that love, um, in verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, this is important for us to point out as well, especially given modern assumptions. Love is not, what Paul is saying here, is that love is not ethically squishy. It is not morally apathetic. Love recognizes that whatever is contrary or inconsistent with God's law is inconsistent with love and the good of others. And therefore, love will not rejoice in what will bring injury and harm to others. So love is not indifferent to the truth. But rather, love is tenaciously committed to the truth for the good of others. Notice next, we see in our text in verse 7, that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In other words, this agape love that the Apostle Paul has been describing here is indestructible and it is eternal. This verse could be translated, love never breaks, love never loses faith, love never loses hope, love never gives up. This last week as I was studying the passage, I came across uh, an account in um, Philip Ryken, he wrote a book entitled Love the Way Jesus Loves. And he cites Richard uh, Wormbrand, who was born a Jew and became a Christian pastor and ministered in Romania while Romania was under communist rule and the Christian church was persecuted. And uh, Richard Wormbrand as a whole spent 14 years in a communist prison. And he writes of his experience there. Listen to these words. He writes, quote, In solitary confinement, confinement, we could not pray any more as before. We were unimaginably hungry. We had been doped until we became as idiots. We were as weak as skeletons. The Lord's prayer was much too long for us. We could not concentrate enough to say it. My only prayer, prayer repeated again and again was, Jesus, I love thee. And then one glorious day, I got the answer from Jesus. You love me? Now I will show you how much I love you. At once I felt a flame in my heart which burned like the sun. And I knew the love of the one who gave his life on the cross for us all. 
He goes on to recount the experience that he had witnessing other believers suffering in prison alongside him. And he says, listen to this, he says, quote, I have seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red-hot iron pokers, and whose throats spoonfuls of salt has been forced, being kept afterward without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold, and praying with fervor for communists. This is humanly inexplicable. It is the love of Christ which was shed into our hearts. End of quote. My friends, that is a love that, as Paul says here, a love that endures, a love that believes all things, hopes all things, bears all things. This is the nature of agape, divine love, the love of Christ. Now, I've been reading through the Gospels and have finished them again and and coming to Jesus' death, even this last week as I was reading uh, through the Gospels, just struck again how Jesus in the moment of His death was forsaken by His countrymen. He was forsaken by His government. He was forsaken by his religious leaders. He was forsaken by his closest friends. He was falsely accused. He was unjustly condemned. He was beaten, ridiculed, crucified. It just, uh, the injustice and the rejection and the forsakenness, if that's a word, just keeps coming. And listen, my friends, his love never fails. Not once. He endures ultimate rejection, ultimate humiliation, the worst of deaths, and His love never wanes. And that is the gospel love that pursued you. It never fails. It's relentless and it keeps coming. Finally, let's consider a response to this love. How should we respond to the agape divine love that is presented to us here in verses 4 through 7? And there are two responses, and I will hit both of them very quickly. The first is this, to be crushed. To be crushed. Let me explain what I mean by that. Put your name, read verses 4 through 7, And put your name in the place of love. Bert is patient and kind. Bert does not envy or boast. Bert is not arrogant or rude. Does not insist on his own way. Bert is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's a joke. I mean, it's a joke. Which one of you, which one of us could stand before God and say to Him, we have always loved you and others the way we ought? So be crushed by the perfection of divine love. And secondly, be liberated. Now do this, in verses 4 through 7, Put Jesus' name in the place of love. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on His own way. He is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now that's more like it, right? And listen, Jesus loved you like that so that you might be changed by love. Jesus came to this earth. He died in the place of sinners. He was raised so that you might live. He went to the uttermost extremes of love. He plummeted the depths of love on your behalf in order that you might be saved and changed by love. And listen, my friends, this is amazing. But in one sense, what is a joke to put your name in the place of love? By God's grace, if you are trusting in Christ as your Savior, is becoming a reality in your life. No doubt it's hard to see. At times it seems imperceptible. But God has done and is doing a work in your life and He is changing you by His love. So that the more you understand His love and the more you press into His love and the more you are taken by His love, you are becoming more loving. This is the grace of and the mercy of God in our lives. Christ loved us like this so that we might be changed by love. May it be true of every one of us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, help us to marvel and rejoice and take such delight in the fact that we worship a God who, although He owns the universe and has created all things, would become a man, wash feet, and die a wretched death on a cross in love. Oh God, that is weighty and it is glorious. And help us to rejoice in that reality. And Father, I pray for each one of us. I pray that by your grace, Lord, we would trust and believe in that love, knowing that it's not anything that we can earn or attain in our own strength or ability, but is offered freely. And Father, I pray for anyone who has not trusted in that love and been changed by that love, that even now in these moments by your grace, that they would come to you and that they would confess their lack of love and believe and trust in the love that you have shown them in Christ through the death of your Son. And then, Lord, change us. Change us by your grace with our spouse and our children with one another in this church body here at Berea, and as we reach out into our community and to the nations, Lord, make us loving as Christ loves. And it's in His name we pray.